0: Excited to be back for our roundtable series. It's been a, a few weeks since we uh, were here discussing the book of Luke. As you may recall, we have been engaged in this series. We're calling Luke's Urgent Care, where we're looking at short m- events, short teaching opportunities that appear throughout the gospel in a four verses or less. And, and we're taking the time to, to analyze these passages, to study them, and, and to... Um, receive the medication that they provide, essentially. Tonight, if you will, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 as we tackle the next in these series. We're going to be looking at just two verses tonight, Luke chapter 9, verse 49, and verse 50. There we read, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, the one who is not against you is for you. Well tonight we want to spend time looking at this passage, but as we've done I think every week with our study of Luke's urgent care, we spend a little time in context because context matters. And so what I I want us to start off with is is looking at the events that immediately precede this statement, this conversation, and see what impact those events and those uh, uh, things have on the text because if you if you look at, look back over the past chapter you'll see events like uh, when Jesus makes that bold statement if, to take up your cross and follow me you'll have the transfiguration you'll have uh, the healing of a, a boy who is po- demon possessed you'll have uh, an argument about who is the greatest a lot of things precede this so let's take a moment what bearing do the events that precede Luke chapter 9 verse forty-nine, fifty, have on John's question. Ben Hogan would you like to start?
1: Yeah I think uh, context always matters of course uh, in the round table hopefully you've learned that we always try to consult the context around a passage before we uh, try to attempt to understand what's happening. Uh, I think especially for tonight it's important for us to understand the context because um, honestly this is a very short passage, and so to understand what's going on in the short passage, you really have to understand what's happening before it. And I think, honestly, just to sum it up, I would say the context of this passage tonight is a string of events that the disciples and apostles cannot comprehend. Hmm. It's, it's, it's a string of events that continue to happen to the disciples and around the ministry of Jesus that the apostles are clueless about. They, they, they really have no idea how to describe what they're seeing, how to describe what is happening around them. I mean, just look at the text with us, uh, starting with the transfiguration in verse 27. We know this is something that they didn't understand. They had absolutely no understanding of what was happening. In fact, to this very day, we still question what was really taking place in this amazing moment. It's it's almost beyond our comprehension what takes place on that mountain. In in fact, just to show that they had no idea what they were visualizing, Peter, Peter suggests that they make this physical monument for a spiritual moment. I mean, he, he's trying to make something physical out of something extremely spiritual, and, and Jesus is just like, or God, him, God himself is like, no, that, that's not what this is about. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so, there's one instance of the disciples and apostles simply not being able to comprehend what's going on around them. And then continue on in the text, in verse 37, there's this boy who has this inexplicable demon that is is an aggressive demon that completely controls him in every way and, and 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 the 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 man comes to the apostles and says please do something about this and they say no they they, they they don't believe that they can actually do it they don't believe they can cast this demon out that's why Jesus says in verse 41 oh faithless and perverse generation he, he's talking about his own apostles in this time they simply couldn't understand how a demon like that could could possibly be cast out. And then in verse 43, we can see Jesus predicting his death. And not only do we know the apostles couldn't understand it, but verse 45 explicitly says that the meaning of this was hidden from them. Yet again, an an example of something that they couldn't possibly understand. And then Kyle just read a passage for us, the passage we're talking about tonight. It's obviously another example where they can't understand what's happening around them. Um, when there is this man healing he, or casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but yet he hasn't been following uh, with them this whole time. And so, all that to say, there is this, the context of, of our passage tonight is a string of events where you have the disciples and the apostles of Jesus constantly realizing that there are things happening around them cannot be explained. That cannot be understood. They're constantly being reminded that they are in absolutely no control over the situation. Yet time and time again, by the way, I missed one of them. Who is the greatest? (laughs) Obviously, the apostles had no idea what they were doing or what was going on around them if they're asking the question, who is the greatest? They're asking the question, "Who is the greatest in a kingdom that rewards the least?" How clueless are these apostles? And yet again, in our text tonight, they are clueless about what's happening around them. Uh, and I think ultimately, the context into this text is is clearly the apostles have no idea what God is up to.
2: I, I think that's a really uh, a really interesting look at at the context of this and and along with them not understanding. One thing I love is how in verse 49, like the beginning of our passage tonight, it starts out by John answered. It's like it's his, you know, this is coming directly off of the who is the greatest comment, and then John is going to go into this passage. I think it's very interesting that we are coming off of a lot of passages, not only do they not understand it, but that indicate that there are a lot of moments where Jesus is close to these guys. Like it's the inner circle, right? So like you look at, Uh, you look at, he does have a pretty broad statement of take up your cross, and that's saying, though, hey, you're going to have to be on my pretty inner circle. You're going to have to take up a cross and follow me. You have the the transfiguration, which is a real tight inner circle that we see there. Um, And then you have, I love in the midst of the crowd, when he heals the boy with the unclean spirit, he then turns to the disciples. And it's like, hey, I don't know about you guys, but whenever, like, I've, I've never really interacted with a celebrity. When I do, I cry and run away. But, um, like, like I, can, I can remember when, like, say Amelia was a, a bridesmaid in a wedding or something like that. And I was just like, the little peasant who showed up at the wedding and a bridesmaid would come up and be like, talk to me personally. I was like, wow. Like, somebody who has responsibility just spoke to me and, and having that special feeling. But you've got to imagine the, the disciples, Jesus is talking to these crowds. He's just performed a miracle and he has a conversation with them personally and they're sitting here and having this conversation about who is the greatest. And, and along with they can't comprehend it, I think his inner circle and the context leading up to this is, who's going to be the guy who sits at his right hand when he's the king? You know, who's, who's going there's still, you kept on mentioning how they couldn't fathom it or grasp it. I think that there's really a, a failure to understand at this point, still we know this, but a failure to understand the spirituality of what is taking place. Um, they're still very earthly focused and still very concerned, I think, about who's going to get to be royalty uh, upon the ending. And I think that you see this, oh, we've got to have this tight circle so we're all the guys, you know. You get that position, I get this position, or whatever it is. And so when I process this passage as we get into it, it's guys who are really concerned about, hey, in years to come, how powerful am I going to be?
3: I, I think about the one that stood out to me was the father of the boy with the unclean spirit, verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And so then we come to 49 and 50, and John is witnessing a guy doing what they couldn't. And I wonder, I wonder if that bothered him. And then the other thing that comes up that I think about would be, at, in the midst of the argument about who's the greatest, verse 48, Jesus says, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. I want to focus on that prepositional phrase, in my name. Receiving a child in Jesus' name would seem to be kind of the simplest, humblest act, nothing too profound and majestic. Receiving a child in his name. And John be like, Oh boy. We just stopped somebody from doing something on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Not something simple and humble, but powerful, awesome, casting out demons in your name, and we stopped them. And so those two little contextual nuggets kind of make the, the text pop to me as well. Absolutely.
0: Well, with that, with that bit of background, let's, let's go ahead and look at the issue that John does bring up. What was John's problem... With this person casting out demons in Jesus' name, when we when we look at, at at
3: this issue he raises, why does it bother him? Do you think? I I was I was thinking about this. I know Ben McGreevy. I was sharing with you that the, the closest parable, parallel I could think was was this that uh, I went to Georgia. I'm, I'm a uh, Georgia student, University of Georgia graduate, and I remember being there and being irritated this is horrible horrible but being irritated that people my peers my same age could would cheer for Georgia but they weren't at Georgia like how dare you You at Augusta State University or Mercer or you high school kid or whatever how dare you you don't have the right to to cheer for Georgia you're not at Georgia and I, I know that sounds silly and petty but that's almost kind of the vibe I get John is in the, the super awesome rabbi school of Jesus, the University of Jesus, and he's upset that somebody is, is cheering and doing things for the team, even though they're not really, you know, at the school. And so that's the closest thing I could think of.
0: Great analogy.
2: <laughs> well, the three of us are fans of teens and didn't go to the school. Um, oh. <laughs> but, no, I, I think that that is... When you shared that with me, I thought that's that's the answer to this question. It's right there. That's the attitude uh, that we see. I think it's astounding to think of the apostles stopping somebody from sharing Jesus. I mean like I, I just can imagine that I feel like this is the second round table I've like kicked back and and said, can you imagine this, but like, like you see somebody and they're doing amazing things and they, they're saying, everything I do is, is in the name of Jesus and, and there's this guy, Jesus, and I'm, I'm casting out demons in his name and you got to imagine it was more than casting out demons. I mean, if he could cast out demons, this entire guy's conversation was going to be about Jesus. And the, the other disciples who were always around Jesus just stopping and saying, you don't need to do that anymore. Like, stop talking about Jesus. You don't have a right. You know, like this, this idea of sitting there and saying, if we go back to the idea of like the inner circle and, and the jealousy of watching somebody else, like, if you, don't do this casting out because if you can cast out and we can't, like Craig mentioned, what does that mean for our seat in the kingdom? What does that mean for our spirituality? We're not a fan of this. You need to stop. Jesus probably wouldn't approve because you're not with us. And so what Craig, you said about making that comparison to the sports teams, I think it's spot on. I think those so there's.
3: Well, I was, you know, like, just think about, think, we, we think about the dude doing the casting out, but think about the people who were demon possessed, mm. right? I think you bring a good, good point. The, how horrible their lives were. Mm. And to say to someone, stop helping these people. Like, I think we could maybe, it resonates more. If these, this guy was healing people of their diseases and infirmities and to say, stop, these people's lives are being changed by this and you're telling this person to stop, man, that that's quite the context to consider too.
2: Lives yeah? are being changed by Jesus and people are telling them, stop letting Jesus change people's lives. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Wow.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I just, I mean, and I, every time I go to a text, I really try not to. Uh, commit eisegesis, meaning reading into the text what I think mm. it means, or I, we try to we, we try to do exegesis, bringing out of the text. But if you'll if you'll bear with me, I, I think I think honestly this is what's happening in this text, and I'm, I want to make sure I say this right. John would rather the people possessed by demons stay possessed than for these demons to be cast out in the way that they were. What? John the Apostle would rather these people, like Craig's talking about, live out the rest of their days tormented by these demons than to see these demons cast out in the way that they were cast out. What I mean is, if, that, if this person who was doing the casting out of demons wasn't one of the elite, handpicked, chosen followers of Jesus, John would rather stop that person from doing a great thing, even if that means that demon ravaged that person's life for the rest of their life. And if you just zoom out and you think about that, how sorry of an attitude is that to think about? If you zoom out and hear what is happening in this passage, someone is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They're not doing it in the name of Zeus. They're not doing it in the name of some pagan god at the time. They're doing it in the name of Jesus. And not only are they attempting to cast that demon out, They're successfully casting that demon out. And they're doing it in the name of Jesus. It's actually working. Demons are being cast out and people's lives are changing for the better in the name of Jesus. But instead of seeing the good that is being done, instead of of, of glorifying God through what is happening in in front of them, John says, we forbade him. We forbade him to continue doing it. And my question is, and I'm sure Jesus is thinking, Who are you, John? Who, who? What gives you the right to forbid the Spirit of God to work in the way that the Spirit of God chooses to work? John forbidding this man is really John forbidding the Spirit to move through this man. It's almost like Jesus is saying, what gives you the right to tell the Spirit of God what to do? And we we read in the New Testament to rejoice with those who rejoice, and here we see John upset. John is upset. Not only is he not rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, he is angry at the time of someone else's rejoicing. The fact that they would have the audacity to claim Christ if they don't walk around with us each and every day exactly what, the way we do, that's what's happening in this text. And, and, and it, is, it is a bit shocking to come from John, uh, to come from one of the, the, the inner circle people of Jesus, to see this kind of, of deafness to what is going on in the life of Christ at this time is, is, is shocking.
2: Well, and something you just said reminded me of something Craig said earlier. Like, like, I think that we can read this sometimes and think about this as an aggressive thing from John, but maybe he's responding to the idea of this guy could cast out demons and we couldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it almost I almost wonder if, if he comes at Jesus. I mean, this is John. You know, like, if, if we've read the, the book of John, we know his personality and, and who he is and— in his attitude, you almost wonder if he comes at it and says, with more of a questioning, we, we couldn't do this. We, we tried to stop him because we didn't feel like it was appropriate. Why is this the case? He's not, he's not with us. Did we do the right thing? Um, I don't know that that's his approach, and it's hard to know unless we were there what his approach was. But I do wonder if, if John almost came at it as a more confused individual who didn't understand the greater point than an individual who is aggressively attacking an, uh, a, somebody who is doing good. I don't know. That's a...
0: I like that you bring that up because this is something we would expect Peter to say. <laughs> okay. this, this would be perfect for Peter. And, and the fact that it does come from John, whether it's coming from a a, a, a mode or a mindset of jealousy, of exclusivity, of, hey, we want credit, Or if it's a more genuine, sincere, innocent motive, we don't know. But I do think it speaks to the fact that if John, the beloved disciple, the one who who is seated seated next to Jesus at the uh, Last Supper, the one who is actually there at the cross while everybody else is gone, the the John that seems to be like the most um, dedicated disciple in the long term, if he can fall into this trap that any one of us can fall into this trap. Yeah. Uh, I think that's worth recognizing. Uh, one commentator I, I was studying pointed out that John never speaks up on his own in the Gospels. The only time you see John speaking is in tandem with his brother, or you don't hear him speaking at all. And, and so for him to be the, the focal point of this issue is, is kind of fascinating. But we we see here... Lots of things in play. We, we can see this idea of exclusivity because of the inner circle mentality. We can see this um, feeling of inadequacy because he wasn't capable and this guy was. And we can, you know, we, we can see all these things in play. So we've dealt with John's statement. Now let's talk about what Jesus says. What is the point of Jesus's response to John? He says, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. What is the point of jesus's response and what bearing does it have on the church today
3: craig you want to get us started uh multiple ideas come to mind but one one of them is that to me it's almost as if jesus is saying john you you think that something matters to me but you're wrong Mm. and this this i it was one of those things where I started making a list of all of the times people made assumptions about Jesus and the things that were important to him, and they were wrong about him, and I, I ran out of time, and the list got too long, but here you go. Here's a list. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Don't you care? Tell my sister then to help me. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus ain't got time for all these children. Oh boy, what a waste of time, or waste of money that ointment is send these people away to get something to eat. Let us make three tents. That blind man needs to be quiet. Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. And there, there are many more. And so like the big applicable lesson to me, one of them at least, is that even those closest to Jesus, even those presumably closest to Jesus can be wrong about what really matters to him. And I think that when I think about what affects the church today, I think that If John can fall into that trap, then so
1: can we.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, just look what he says. He says, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. (laughs) To me, it's like he's saying, have you forgotten who the enemy is in this situation? Uh, Is it not the demons? Is the enemy in this situation not the demons that were cast out? you are making the enemy of this situation someone who is doing something that you should have done. But since you didn't do it, this person goes out and does it in my name, and you're making them the enemy. It's almost, honestly, I think Jesus is confused here. He's like, is this guy doing something in someone else's name? And they're like, no. And he's like, okay. Um... Is this guy doing this to bring glory on himself in any way? Is there any indication of that? And they're like, no. And he's like, okay. All right. Is this guy in any way a threat to the kingdom that we are trying to establish? Well, I mean, he doesn't walk around with us. Well, is that a threat? Uh, No. So Jesus is like, okay, then why are you making this guy the enemy? What's the true problem here? The problem is they wanted, they wanted Christianity their way. And so when I think about your question, Kyle, what bearing does this have on the church today, I think I want to have a discussion on how there are many of us who want to have Christianity on our own terms and not on Christ's terms. We want to have Christianity to look like what we want it to look like. We want a comfortable Christianity when in the Gospels you see a very uncomfortable Christianity going on. And what I mean by that is a few questions I want to ask you. I asked myself these questions and I was uncomfortable with my own answers. So I want to ask us and I want to ask everyone tonight to think about these questions. <clears throat> Do you. Really, like, like really, do you really want a homeless person to come into this building who hasn't bathed in weeks, whose clothes are, are, are tattered, their breath smells like alcohol, they stink to high heaven, do you really want that person to sit by you tonight? Would you would would you scoot over to where they could have a seat beside you and your family, or would you hope that they they found some empty seats over there? Let me ask another question: If you knew a former criminal, who had served time and had put that life behind him or her, came into this building and they wanted to know more about Jesus. Would you, would you really be comfortable with that? Or would you say, come here, we're going we're gonna to stay away from that person. Let me ask another one. How comfortable would you be if you knew that someone coming into this building was a recovering drug addict, and that they had maybe even sold drugs, how comfortable would you be if, if that person put that life behind them and, and they came and they were baptized into Christ and they, and, they, and they were forgiven of all those sins by God, could you forgive them of those sins? Let's say this man or this woman go, or excuse me, take the, let's say this man in this in this hypothetical question. Let's say this man puts that life behind him, and after years of of service in this church, how many names in the congregation would have nominated him to be a deacon? You see, I ask those uncomfortable questions tonight because. I think we have grown accustomed to having Christianity our own way. And our own way is, is they got to look like us, they got to talk like us, they got to act like us, and they got to they gotta in no way make me uncomfortable. And then we'll go to lunch with them, and then we'll, we'll let them sit with us at worship. But guys, that is not the church of the New Testament. The church of the New Testament was full of people that were recovering homosexuals, recovering drunkards, recovering idolaters, recovering everything you name it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And such were some of you, but you were washed. but You were justified, but you were sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Guys, when I talk about having Christianity on our own terms, I'm talking about taking away phrases that Jesus himself said like these. Come unto me all, you who labor and are heavy laden. I'm saying taking away phrases like this when Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Talking about phrases like this when Jesus says, I will draw all men unto me. So the problem with John's attitude here, and I think... Each one of us deal with this attitude here is wanting to have Christianity on our own terms.
2: Hmm.
1: When Christ has outlined a whole completely different set of terms.
0: Hmm. You got anything to add, Ben?
2: Uh, I'll, throw, I'll throw this in there. I think it's interesting um, that they're uncom- and, and this is probably pretty repetitive to what was just said, but I. I think about the, the original word for disciple means this idea of, of learner, right? I think one of you guys said this earlier, but like I'm a I study at the University of Jesus, right? Like it's this idea of learner. Um, and thinking about how different people are disciples in different ways is very interesting. I have no doubt that this guy who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus had not sat there and seen Jesus. And what was he going to do? See him one time and then go start casting out people in the name of Jesus? I I don't think so. I think he probably sat back and said, okay, as someone who wants to follow Jesus, I'm going to turn my life from a simple follower to an active individual. Um, And I know that for me, sometimes I can step back and look at it and say, okay, just because someone else is doing Discipleship differently than I am doesn't make it inherently wrong. Uh, Kyle, you said something in your lesson this morning um, that was just that that for some reason hit me. You said the phrase like, "I don't have to be the greatest gospel preacher of my generation" or something like that. One of the the Mount Rushmore. You said that phrase, and I thought, man, as a church, how do we struggle with this? You know, how do we struggle with wanting to be the biggest, best church? Um, do we ever see other churches doing things and think, "Ah, oh, we do it better"? Uh, I remember when I was um, I was interning at a congregation when I was in college, and I grew up at Mount Juliet Church of Christ, and I heard a, a minister from another congregation came and was meeting with the minister of the in- congregation where I interned, and the guy said, "I'm so tired of hearing about all the stuff Mount Juliet's doing. They're just doing so much. I'm sick of it." And I thought, "Man, that is is such an attitude of." my church isn't any worse than that church. And it was an envy that Mount Juliet was doing good things. And I understand that I could be a little bit skewed in my mindset of what Mount Juliet was doing, but there was rapid growth when, yeah. that I saw there. So I knew I know what Mount Juliet was doing was good. And I thought to myself, man, it is sad that we in the church can sometimes have a mentality that looks at what other churches are doing and says, I'm so sick of that. I'm so sick of them doing a good job at that when it's all for the name of Jesus. And I think sometimes the church, we as the church can struggle with that, and I don't know if it's congregation-wide or super individual, or maybe it was just that guy who was in ministry on that day and was annoyed with it. Um, But I certainly have felt it at points, at places where I am. And so uh, that was just something that stood out to me when I was reading this passage.
3: Yeah, and one sentence I would like to add is just, we at least have record of one man in history Thinking that someone is really against the Christian cause, but in reality they were for the cause. One person, at least, guilty of that in history. Uh, maybe others as well. That's it. All right. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go any further with that. But, uh, <laughs> Kyle, I didn't understand
1: who you're talking about. I'm talking no. about John. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. I'll all right. Just-
0: you, you got that big smile on your face, and I was like, oh, Craig's got something more to say. no that's yeah. it. All right, well, with the limited time we have, let me jump to the, uh, our, our fourth question, because this one pairs what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 9 and verse 50 with something he will say in Luke chapter 11, verse 23. And I want us to consider how these two statements relate to each other if they contradict each other. Let me put both of them up here. Luke 9, verse 50 says, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And then in Luke 11 and verse 23, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. How should we understand the interplay between these two? Are they contradictory or are they complementary?
3: Jesus' language is very neutral, averse. Um, Anti more than two parties. Uh, Again, another list for you. Sheep and goats, wheat and weeds, Good and bad fish, good trees and bad trees, five wise and five foolish virgins, building on the sand, building on the rock, a Pharisee and a tax collector, a rich man and Lazarus, resurrection of life, resurrection of judgment, just two groups. And that's a very offensive message. I'll be honest with you, that's very offensive to today's culture and maybe to some of us because it's no longer male, female, two groups. It's no longer, you know, we, in our world, you can't just be a Republican or a Democrat. It's more uh, complicated than that. Um, we, we see people uh, across a spectrum or on a color wheel. And so when we read something like this, just incredibly, I mean, if this isn't the most offensive message in the Bible, I don't know what is. Matthew 25 and verse 32 talks about how the Son of Man comes in His glory and all of the nations will be gathered in front of Him and they'll separate sheep from goats. Think about that. This, 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 the Son of Man has the audacity to say that all the people all nations can come in front of me, and I can take those people and put them in just two groups. That is an offensive statement today. And so to me, when I look at this, I, to me, I'm just going to break it down as simple as I can, Jesus is saying in one statement, if you're not in A, then you're in B, and in the other statement, he's saying, if you're not in B, then you're in A, because there's just two groups. That's how my math mind sees it. Yeah. No, that's it? <sighs>
2: All right, nailed I got it. something else then. You I got, nailed it. Go I got something
3: it. else. I got something else. <laughs> Hold on, how long do I have here? <laughs> uh, no, no. I think the other thing that stood out to me was, was this, is that I would argue that different people in different situations need to hear a different quote of those two. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the top one there, we know the context. The bottom one, Jesus says this to uh, skeptical crowd members, non-believers. He, he, says, he says it to... Uh, really critical Pharisees, Um, and so doubting Pharisees in a crowd of fence-riding bystanders need to hear, whoever's not with me is against me. And disciples who have a weakness for criticism, harsh judgment, over-the-top zeal need to hear, whoever's not against us is for us. And here's the incredible irony of this, is that each group is more likely to focus on the opposite message. The harsh, critical folks are going to see whoever's not with us is against us. And the complacent, riding-the-fence person in the world is going to say, oh, hey, whoever's not against him is for him. And so that's just a sad thing. All right, that's it. That's good stuff.
0: Y'all have nothing to add? Well, one thing I, I do find interesting, Craig, you, you, you pulled a Ben Hogan. <laughs> that's right.
3: Scratch it off the bucket
0: list. One it's thing awful. that I, that I
1: <laughs> you'll get there one day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> one thing that I did find interesting is the use of the, how the first statement in chapter nine focuses on you. Chapter uh. eleven focuses on me, and so there's there is a sense in which Jesus is expecting um, th- that there there can be no neutrality, mm-hmm. one one author said, no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You're either with him. Or you're not. But when it comes to ourselves, when it comes to considering the relationship between me and you and and vice versa, uh, it's a lot broader. Um, It's a lot more um, open, I guess. So it's interesting because the focal point of the two passages is different. One is you, one is me. And when it comes to focusing on Jesus, no neutrality. When it comes to focusing on each other, Mm -hmm. There's a little bit more openness, a little bit more broadness to the context. Mm. Just an interesting thought I, I, mm. I picked up on as I was mm. studying. So let's close this out. What's your big takeaway for, the, for this study? What's your big takeaway from Luke chapter 9, 49, 50?
1: Yep. I think ultimately I, I'll go ahead and say just to me it's a message of humility. And uh, it's a message to remind ourselves we don't have to understand everything God's doing fact we can't for us to act like we can understand exactly what god's up to and exactly how god is choosing to act and move and do things in our lives is outlandish and it is completely against what christianity is all about and, and, it, and, it, and when we find ourselves in this moment we find ourselves as ridiculous as john was in our text tonight and i, I just want to re from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11-14. Paul says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak That in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. After reading that passage, I just want to reiterate. To me, the biggest takeaway is understanding that sometimes it's okay to not understand everything. Sometimes it is is okay to not understand what God is up to. And we need to be okay allowing God to have that superiority over us. Because the Spirit of God, in this text we learn tonight in Luke chapter 9, the Spirit of God is going to move, He is going to act, He is going to operate however He wants to operate. And it is not for me to decide what He can do, because I can't even understand how He does what He has done. Ultimately, Paul says it all when he says, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And as a follower of Christ, i got to be okay with it. So to me, the biggest takeaway tonight is understanding that I've got to humble myself and understand I'm not going to understand. I've got to humble myself and understand that Christ, as long as the, the mission of Christ is being accomplished on the terms that he set, I better get out of Christ's way. Sometimes I get in Christ's way when Christ, is trying to do something I don't understand.
2: Similar to to yours where you said you know humility into not understanding where like the work of Christ uh, for me and this is just a personal thing for me I, I look at it in a sense of how do I have humility when I'm approaching what I'm doing for the kingdom and we're sitting here on a Sunday night right uh, I imagine if you're here on a Sunday night you have made spiritual things a pretty big priority in your life because you've decided to come back. Um, And you're here on a Sunday night. Uh, I will say, and maybe this is a personal confession that I needed to hear as well, but there are so many times when I look at things that are happening in the church um, and I just get angry about it. And I know that this isn't just something I struggle with because I've talked to people who, from every different... Section of the church, whether it be somebody who is a family on the struggling to get plugged in or, you know, a family that is super plugged in or whatever it is, and people just have issues with the way things are are done in, in congregations. And as I sit there and process this, processing it with the humility of saying, okay, when I see good things happening for the kingdom, even if it's not how I would do it, it's OK, because good is being done for the kingdom. Um, I can think about the congregation where we were in Colombia. There were so many amazing things happening. But there were also some programs that were happening where it was just, I would sit back. And I can remember storming into our, our pulpit minister's office, just so frustrated, because I would walk in and say, what a waste of time. Like, this barely did anything. This is ridiculous. Why are we even letting this person be in charge of this program? Uh, And and generally, I would get a smile, and it would be like, well, do you want to be in charge of this program? Or or if you were in charge of this program, like if they weren't doing this program, how many people would be impacted by it? And having the humility to sit back and just say, you're right, like there are people in the congregation who are doing a lot of really amazing things for the church. And I don't need to ever feel an anger or bitterness towards those people because they're not doing it in the way that I think that they should do it. And so it's definitely, uh, there are a lot of ways you could process this passage, but for me, that really just hit me across the face. I needed that this week. And so uh, that that stood out to me.
3: And and I would, I would, I would like to just recommend for additional reading for for folks out there, Numbers 11, uh, when elders are appointed to to aid Moses, there's a very similar situation, Numbers 11 and John 3, uh, when John the Baptist is told about Jesus and all the awesome things that are happening and how he responds. John 3, and then Philippian 1. Philippians 1, when, when Paul hears in house arrest about all these people that are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, envy, and rivalry, and how he reacts, all very similar reactions to Christ, the one they follow. Um, but I'll, I'll return to my earlier point, is that, is that we, we can be wrong about the things that matter most to Jesus. Uh, let me just think, think for a moment, if you're going to tell one parable or what, one story about what judgment will be like, and separating people into two groups, what would you choose? What's going to be the theological thing that you would say, the people in this group did this, and the people in this group didn't do this? We would probably think of certain things above others, but when Jesus tells his one story about that, he says, well, the people over here, I was hungry, and they fed me. I was thirsty, and they gave me drink, and the people over here, they didn't do that. And that's the thing we would not have put in the top, I'll be honest with you, Craig would not put that in his top five or his top ten. And Jesus, that's the one thing he mentioned. And so it's a reminder, this is a continual reminder to me that the things that matter to Jesus might be different than the things that matter to me, and I need to wake up and and listen to Jesus. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your contributions tonight.
0: We hope you've enjoyed the study. As always, if if you're at a point in your life where you're realizing that things need to change, if you need to put on Christ in baptism, that Im- invitation is always open, and you can meet up with one of us or one of the shepherds of this congregation immediately after this. We'll we'll gladly fulfill your request tonight. It's already been a great day because two to, to joined the family today. Um, with that being said, let us uh, close out this time of study, this time of worship and prayer. Our Lord, we are so, so very grateful that we can we can study your word. We're, we're grateful that we can look at the life of your Son, at the teachings of your Son, and find things anew time and time again. We're thankful for the reminder we have that the things that are important to you are things we might miss from time to time. Lord, help us to always be in search of what matters most, and help us always, Lord, to prioritize you above all else. We thank you for loving us, we thank you for sending your son to die for us, and we thank you for giving us this body of believers that is called the church. We love you, Lord, and it is through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray.